0: Loose lips sink ships. That's a cliche because it's true in the world of military operational security. They call it OPSEC. The White House is now directing civilian agencies to train employees in protecting sensitive information. The National Counterintelligence and Security Center leads that effort. Federal news network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the deputy assistant director for Inside Threats at the NCSC. Rebecca
1: Morgan. A lot of people might be familiar with this place called the Interagency OPSEC Support Staff. Uh, They were over at the National Security Agency for many years. People knew them as the Purple Dragon, um, and they held that mission. But uh, two years ago, in January of 2021, there was a new National Security Presidential Memorandum that came out NSPM 28, and that actually increased the scope of OPSEC requirements for the federal government. This is something that a lot of people have in the past maybe associated with military, DOD activities, and they've always had OPSEC requirements, but in an acknowledgement of the change in the threat environment, We know that adversaries, and whether that's foreign intelligence entities or criminal enterprises, are targeting U.S. government information, and they don't always go after the classified. So there was a recognition of that, and the White House put out this memorandum, which levied a requirement on all executive branch departments and agencies that they must implement OPSEC programs in their organizations. And so uh, standing up that and being at the helm of mission management of that discipline was the NCSC. We were named as the mission manager for OPSEC. And so it's been our role to leverage the great expertise that came from our partners back at the interagency OPSEC support staff. And I will tell you, they actually had a stuffed Purple Dragon, and they let us have that as well. Um, But to take that expertise and take it outside the realm of just the military and make it so that our federal partners across the U.S. government could implement these programs. Got
0: it. So the Purple Dragon has moved over to NCSC. And so all agencies really have to have their own OPSEC program now, you know, What does that look like? You know, are there requirements for what the workforce should do? Is it more in the realm of best practices?
1: Yeah, it's a combo. So there are a very specific set of requirements that departments and agencies must follow. I will say that they are dependent to some degree on the size and complexity of the organization. So for example, um, an OPSEC program at Department of Labor is gonna look really different than an OPSEC program at the Army. We have to acknowledge that, but it doesn't mean that there's still not a requirement. And they range for everything from specific uh, training and awareness for the workforce itself at departments and agencies to actually conducting OPSEC assessments within the departments and agencies, the ability to identify critical information, to assess threats and vulnerabilities at the organization, and analyze the risk, and then deploy a appropriate countermeasures. And those are the goals that departments and agencies must meet. There's different ways that they can do it depending on their needs. We have all the tools in the world to help them do that. Um, again, one of those requirements though is getting that education and awareness out to the workforce. You can have the best OPSEC plan and program on paper, but if your folks aren't practicing safe practices every day, um, it's not going to be successful. And so that's one of the emphasis behind OPSEC Awareness Month. We wanted to really provide a platform for our federal partners and truly others to understand the risks associated with poor OPSEC practices and to understand some of the easy things that they can deploy um, in order to educate themselves and protect their information.
0: Are there any common examples of poor OPSEC that you're seeing maybe today across that, that might be kind of common across agencies, particularly civilian agencies, since this might be kind of new to them compared to the national security side.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, when I talk about critical information or protecting mission, a lot of people instantly think I'm talking about classified information or protecting uh, 100% like national security missions. And the truth is we already have programs in place to protect those. Um, We know though that unclassified information Information about missions and activities that the whole of the federal government perform are targets of adversaries. And so that's not just a foreign intelligence entity, but a criminal, domestic or foreign violent extremist, diplomatic reasons, economic reasons. And when we lose information, it's not only that unclassified stuff can be aggregated to get to the classified, but it's often the unclassified itself that's the actual target. Think about something like pre-decisional regulatory requirement that, if got out there, could allow somebody to manipulate the markets or information about a data system that, if shared, could facilitate somebody executing ransomware on that system. There's a lot of PII, personally identifiable information, about employees, and I don't just mean people that are undercover or working in national security positions, but in general in the U.S. government that can be used to create targeting packages on those individuals that can enhance the efficacy of phishing scams or other scams And so when that information gets out there, it puts us all at risk. And, you know, the impacts are pretty broad. If you have a government agency that cannot perform its critical mission, you're talking about not having safe drinking water, not being able to respond to emergencies or national disasters, benefit checks, not getting cut. Um, It becomes a quality of life issue as much as a national security issue.
0: And I mean, are you particularly concerned, too, about social media and what folks are doing there, uh, federal employees are doing there when it comes to potential poor OPSEC practices?
1: So much. And, you know, what this has done is it has not only increased the ability for all of us to inadvertently share information, but it's increased the ability for an adversary to also gather it, aggregate it, um, do some analysis on it. And, you know, you might think, well, hey, just because somebody posts something, nobody's going to associate it back to that, you know, government department or agency that they work for. But we leave such trails of digital dust. And even when we try to be careful we find that there are family members and friends who share information just through you know a mix of pride in what we do or naivete about sharing the information that allows it to be associated back and it really can have those second and third order consequences and you know just in the last couple of years, we've seen major ransomware incidents we've seen um you know issues where we've had supply chain failures we've seen issues where we've had Um, acts of violence. We've seen issues where we've had data breach and disclosure where we've had critical functions shut down. Um, A lot of this happens because seemingly innocuous information is swooped up by an adversary and then used against us in ways we hadn't imagined.
0: Rebecca Morgan, Deputy Assistant Director for Insider Threats at the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Be sure to check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest... Lessons that you've learned working with that community. Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane. It's almost immeasurable the things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I uh, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL. and so i I knew that I knew that work a bit. you know they they basically were in direct care and and I will say you know, and on, I obviously will say about my my family, my mother and my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints, uh, but uh the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are are really um, you know we, we can't do enough to salute them. I, I Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give uh working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones, because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful. And, and uh, I mean, we work hard and, you know, we we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day, but uh man, you see it. it and, and, and the inclusion and in the at special Olympics, no one's excluded.